Good evening and welcome to a special edition of Harmonics. Today, I got Andy Bergman on bass, Gene Pardue on drums, and Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Rockabilly Hall of Famer, Billy London and the Lucky Dice. <laughs> hey, fellas. I heard there's some good rocking tonight. totallyunprepared.com. I'm standing on the shake table at University of California, San Diego, where scientists can recreate the motion of an earthquake on this hydraulic platform. It's used to test models and structures to see how well they hold up against the forces of an earthquake. Pretty cool, huh? Today, we're here to answer a very important question submitted by Heather Cram from Los Angeles. Will it shake? These are our snow globes, the best snow globes ever. Uh, not puttied, not strapped, not secured, not prepared. Hey Heather, so our team has assembled a collection to shake just for you. If you look over here, our cabinet is attached to the wall studs with furniture straps. We have museum putty holding the items inside the cabinet down and also the doors are secured with child safe locks. This side, well, we're just gonna see what happens. How do you think we're gonna do here? Uh, I don't know. I don't. We don't like to speculate, but uh, that that one cabinet doesn't look too good. I think it's gonna get ugly. All right. Well, that wasn't too bad. I think we should crank it up a little bit. Can we? Absolutely. Let's do it. The 
the Richter scale is logarithmic, so a 7.0 earthquake is actually a thousand times greater than a 5.0 earthquake. That's it for this episode of Will It Shake? If you have something in your home that you'd like to see shaken up, please visit totallyunprepared.com to find out how you can submit your own video. I've been your host, Susan DeCarl. Don't forget to get prepared. Be the next survival story. Go to totallyunprepared.com. Billy, that was a great first number that you guys just did, man. I mean, <laughs> it was rocking. It was, I was feeling Meet me in a hurry out behind the bar. I, I love the lyrics in that song. That's an old a Roy Brown song. Uh, Roy, Roy wrote that song in 1946, and Elvis did a cover of it. Uh, here's your comb, Andy. I, I was using that a while ago. Uh, you know, it's, it's not the happy days thing, but I do like playing uh, a retro music from uh, 50s and 60s. It's my thing. I'm, I'm glad, you, you know what, I'm glad you're on the show. You know, you're originally from the Bay Area, right? Yes, love the Bay Area. <laughs> well, tell me about Got it. Got good, good weather in the Bay Area, even temperatures, like 72 degrees year-round, you know. Um, um, I, I, I'm from, uh, born in San Jose. At that time, that was the only hospital they would allow Portuguese babies to be born in. Uh, <laughs> on First Street, way down there. And my mother had a, they had a drive. They were living in Union City, which was called Dakota in those days. It sure was. Dakota. And uh, my family has a lot of roots. We had a lot of family members that came and went in the in, uh, along Mission Boulevard in Dakota. <laughs> Back in the day. And, and we are some of the original people, uh, besides the uh, Alionis uh, Indian tribes. It's my family and, and the Alonis. I love it. You know, um, let's get right into what, what you and your brother used to do. You guys started around Fine. 1960. Jeff Ooh, and you. Even before, even before. Uh, we won't even say. So okay. when, when you actually were dabbling in it, I mean, yeah. in the 60s, you guys were really starting to do uh, the Everly Brothers yes. and things. Tell me my about that. My mother, who had the blues after my father uh, disappeared in the middle of the night, just Pop was there, and then he was gone, uh, and she and she was sad. So uh, her brother George taught her how to uh, play the ukulele, okay. uh, a real nice Hawaiian little instrument. And we heard that, said, "Hey, that's nice." It uh, and and we we copped it real easy from mom. She taught us some basic chords and taught us Everly Brothers songs, uh, as well as uh, other songs of the day. I kept hearing like Buddy Holly, you know. I said, "I want to do every day or something." Uh, like Excellent that, but, but mom said stick with the closer walk with D and, and the Everly's and you'll be fine. So we did that. And uh, San Leandro Boys Club hired us as uh, little brothers. The little miniature Everly brothers, they call us. They put us in boxing uh, rings in the middle of boxing matches in between rounds to do songs. Now, were you playing <laughs> guitar or ukes? Or were you guys... In those days, or the early days, we were playing ukes. So we, we never even... There wasn't guitars around for us to, to, to play. I saw... In Pelton Center, speaking of the Bay Area, Pelton Center, in San Leandro there, there was a, a a rock and roll show going on. I heard that. It was across the street from where I lived. And uh, the guys were wearing two-tone shoes, and uh, oh, and they were, they were really rocking. And I said, I want to do that. I saw electric guitars for the first time. I said, someday. And so I asked Mama for one Christmas, come along after the Beatles, and said, you know, we got to play bigger things than ukuleles. And bang, we just made the transformation. You and your brother were quite good at a very early age. Thank you. You guys were in the Staten <laughs> Brothers, and you guys were like just knockout. Tell me how that all evolved, you know, that whole thing, because I know people mispronounce the name constantly. So how did that all develop the brothers like that? Here's the mispronunciation. Staten, Stratton, Station, Stanton, 
Statler, there's your one right there. We, we showed up one time, it was a poster with us, and it said, the Statler brothers. We are not the Statler brothers. We are the, we're the Statons. Mm -hmm. Long A's, Staten brothers. Dad, our adopted father, adopted us, gave us that name, um, was from Arkansas. It's kind of a Southern name. And uh, he was kind of a, and here's the word, hillbilly, <laughs> who always said, I want to see my boys move off to Nashville, Tennessee, and I ain't going to be happy until you do. Now get yourself to school. So... <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, Staten is, uh, we, we were the Staten brothers. We played all over the Bay Area. We got right. kind of famous as the Statens, uh, two brothers who, who did sing it with a good two-part harmony, like the Everly Brothers. Uh, it was in the family, psychic harmony, you know, as they call it. And uh, it worked out for us. Uh, we we got good management here. Uh, and Conright. Uh, Joyce Joyce Canwright was one of our booking agents. Mm -hmm. I love Joyce. Um, we were at Joyce's house, and I said, Joyce, you got to get me on the show. I saw posters said Buffalo Springfield coming to San Leandro, Roll Arena. Right. I said, I want to be on that show. She said, it's all booked up. The doorbell rings. It's Larry White. Larry White managed the Beethovens. Yes. The Beethovens were a group in the Bay Area. And I said to Larry, uh, uh, do you have anything to do with this show? He says, yeah. He says, uh, my partner, Bill Corey, books that. I said, oh, your partner. I said, can you get me on? He said, yeah, I can get you on that, Bill. <laughs> Joyce looks over like you can. <laughs> so Larry, good old Larry, got us on that bill. Changed our lives forever. Because on that bill, we played with the Buffalo Springfield. Open for him. Uh, Peter Wheaton Bradman were there. Excellent. <laughs> and, uh, of Bobby course, Bird on that. yeah, nice bunch of fellas. Mm, and nice. also, uh, Neil Young showed up and Stephen Stills and those boys, those heavyweights. And they come in an old Cadillac. They drove up to the Royal Arena in an old Cadillac. And they had with them Mama Cass Elliott's younger sister. She was working for a cartoon company called Jay Ward. They needed somebody to sing their theme song for a new cartoon being drawn called George of the Jungle. And they said, we need a couple of young fellas to sing George of the Jungle. And they pinned that on the Statens. So, whoop, I banged that's, into my mic. Fine. Hopefully I didn't make too much of a noise in the other room. Uh, and, and, and so that was our first trip to Hollywood. So if I didn't bug Joyce and Larry to get on that bill, would have never made to Hollywood. They invited us down. And we uh, we met the monkeys. Her boyfriend was Peter Tork. Uh, this is Leah Peter Leah Conkle. Uh, Peter Tork. <laughs> yeah. Although Peter was more of a keyboard, he was a classical pianist, a really good one. How was the monkeys? The monkeys were fun, fun, big fun for you know. To me, they were big stars too. I was a teenager. I saw their Dave first Jones. season, uh, and and the next, I was involved with their second season, uh, uh, 1967. They needed uh, players to open for the monkeys. I opened for the monkeys at the Oakland Coliseum in 1969, the last monkeys tour ever with Mike Nesmith. And uh, and the Coliseum was brand new. You could smell the cement uh, drying <laughs> in there. And we we did it. We come out and played the uh, little Staten Brothers songs, and they, they the girls went yay, hurry, and get the monkeys on now. Right. But uh, and that eventually led to a long relationship with the monkeys. And uh, Larry White eventually managed Davy Jones. And Peter Torque, yes, and the state, and so we were one little happy family down there in Los Angeles when I finally moved there. You know, um, in your history, also you have a little um, segment with Cold Blood and Lydia. Oh yeah, tell me about tell me about that. Lydia's such she's so beautiful. Yeah, and she has such a great voice. She's still playing around the Bay Area yes, too. Yes, uh, Miss Lydia, you know, uh, little Miss Dynamite, the first Miss Dynamite. Uh, she, she was in a group called The Generation when I met her. The Generation, we're, we're doing a show in San Carlos here in the Bay Area uh, a long time ago. And, and it was a big band, the horns and everything. This was 
pre Tower of Power and pre Cold Blood and all that. But they had a couple of the same members. Uh, Larry Field was on guitar and and uh, uh, like that. And uh, we met her then, and uh, she was good. And and uh, then um, we we shared the same rehearsal hall in San Leandro. Eventually, they uh, Cold Blood booked uh, over in Tea Garden. There was some rehearsal halls. And they asked if we want to come in and pay half and shared that with Cold Blood and, and became real good friends and started uh, getting booked together. The booking was a little funny because they were a horn band, obviously. Right. Soul Rhythm Review, as they um, would like to be called. As the Bay Area can feature now and again. And we were still uh, kind of like sort of Beatles, Kinks, Yardbirds, that kind of thing. But the show. Blended. I think we were okay in there. Um. <laughs> tell me about your time. You met, uh, and I had the luxury of meeting Clive Davis. T tell me about Clive. The luxury of meeting, you know, Clive, now, that's skipping a page because. We'll skip two. Oh, my, let's skip a bunch. Mm -hmm. That's San Francisco. We got involved, um, I, we, we started recording. Jeff and I started recording for a guy named Paul Curcio over in San Mateo. Mm -hmm. He had Pacific Recording, needed some house band recorders. Jeff and I play all kinds of instruments. Jeff right. is my brother. <laughs> He's in Nashville right now, the other state. And, and we, uh, we do keyboards and drums, guitars, and play all the band instruments. And so they figured they'd get a good uh, package deal if we just basically lived at the studio. Right. And anytime they brought in somebody who paid to, to do a country record or whatever, they'd just hand it to us and we would do all the... I learned our craft that way. We learned how to record. Recording artistry became big with us, and that's that's why we eventually moved to Los Angeles and became session players. Um, but Clive Davis slipped in when we were session players there, made some demos for ourselves on the side. Val Garay, who produced a lot of records uh, for a lot of people, produced some Staten Brothers songs, uh, which we took. What were those songs? We did original Heat Wave before Leonard Ronstadt did it, and he did Leonard Ronstadt's version and took it to her and said, this is the Staten Brothers, what do you think of this? And they did it and had a hit with it which is really cool, but it was songs like that. We wrote some back then. Uh, we write a lot more now. My brother writes uh, Up a Storm. You know, he's written for Johnny Mathis, uh, Art Garfunkel, uh, Rod Stewart, um, the, the the theme for the Purple Dinosaur in PBS, Barney the Dinosaur. My brother did the theme song when the credits roll. <laughs> so you, you and your brother... Can you believe that? Yeah, I can. Because you have a long, <laughs> I, I skipped over Clive Davis real quick because I'm trying to stuff a lot of information right. in. Right. Let, let me ask you this. But you I could get back to it any time you feel I'm gonna like I'm going to get it. back. You and your brother, <laughs> what, what really was... What really drove you to music mm. as young children? I mean, obviously you talked about a little bit about your mom. But what made you guys... <laughs> be who you became, and then become great session players mm. with Stephen Bishop, Toto, etc. You now, know, what, what, what made you have I that? keep smacking this mic. I hope I'm not destroying that microphone. You know, um, music is a funny thing. You're born with abilities. Uh, they call the ability that Jeff and I have absolutes. If you, I met um, some real classical musicians, dated a piano player once, who worked for Disney. Very classical woman playing piano. And she noticed that she couldn't go off the written page, but I could do everything off the written page. I, re I don't read music at all. And she said, you are an absolute. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Um, and you're born with an ability. The thing that drove us to music was this, this burning thing inside of us. Our dad did leave us in the middle of the night uh, a long time ago. We uh, 
there was uh, three kids, my sister and and those Staten brothers, and boom, we had a dad, and suddenly we didn't. And so there was this sort of a feeling of uh, living across the tracks and the blues. Yeah. And we were singing more bluesy Hank Williams type of songs because we were very country-oriented. Mom uh, and our stepdad really liked our country music. And so it was that thing that drove us. was uh, just a natural wellspring inside of us. Um, and, and and the satisfaction of knowing that if when we sang, people accepted us for who we were. They liked what we did. They, I mean, when you see smiles on people's faces and old men crying at the boys' club, that always got me. I'd say, just a closer walk with thee, granted Jesus. And I see these guys take out Kleenex, you know. I said, I'm making old men cry. Right. That's, that's, you know, that's the, a beautiful this, thing. It is a beautiful thing. And I said, this is a powerful thing I'm doing. I'm going to treat it with respect, you know? So you, you went through all that stage. You were session people, successful. What made you go to Nashville, and when did you actually become Billy London? Mm. I was born William. I'm a Billy Jr., so Billy was real easy to become. <laughs> I was Billy up until four. <laughs> then I became my middle name, which was Michael. So see, I'm Billy Michael. Always been, always will be. But when I got to Nashville, and, and this is after I had a couple of Hollywood careers, and we can go over there some other time. Because sure. there's a lot of info in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and even that Clive Davis thing is in there. <laughs> but when I got to Nashville, this is the honest truth, I... Uh, WSM is a huge radio station that they broadcast to Grand Ole Opry. Um, and on my computer, I joined this backyard barbecue contest as Billy London. Because I said, I'm just going to be Billy London here. You know? I love barbecue. Um, London, I chose, by the way, because of Jack London. 30 years ago, I changed my last name from Staten to, to London. My brother changed his last name from Staten to Jones. He's Jeff Jones in Nashville. I'm the Bay Area's Jack London with that name. See, I just love the feeling that Jack London sort of painted over wild. the whole Bay Area. Yeah, we wild. got a chip on our shoulder called the Jack London chip. If you're in Los Angeles, you know, this guy's got a Jack London chip on his shoulder. Interesting. You know, uh, and that's me. And so I said, I'm, I'm just going to change my name to Jack London. I said, no, I'll use... Billy. <laughs> I and, and I joined that, that backyard barbecue contest and won it as Billy London. I won the damn thing. And and they called me up and said, we got Billy London here. You, you won the backyard barbecue. Uh, invite 20 of your friends and we'll bring the barbecue and the fixings and we're going to broadcast from your house. Can we come over, Billy? I said, I won? They said, yeah. So I met a disc jockey who eventually became a good friend of mine down there, where I eventually started my own radio show. You became a disc jockey. Talk about that. Well, I wasn't so much a disc jockey as I was a host in a studio sort of like this one we're in now, uh, with a live audience and a guest each week, a one-hour show on Saturday mornings called the Rockabilly Radio Show. Give me a little bit of, give me a little bit of like your intro. <laughs> oh, that's my announcer. We had a theme song open up. I want to learn a, a uh, Dwayne Eddy song called Rockabilly Holiday would start. And my announcer would give a big, it's the Rockabilly uh, show. You know, I didn't do his bit, but he did. And then he'd say, and here's Billy. And I would launch into a song with my trio. I had a trio sort of like these fellas, not quite as good as Gene or Andy. Oh, <laughs> you know, talk about it. You just brought a, an working great, great bass player. But this guy in the back, Gene Pardue, I've known for 40 years and truly one of the great drummers in the United States, if not the world. This guy, Gino, absolutely, totally a, a great artist. Let's, you know, you, you got you got into that. You mm. did the DJing. Yeah, you, you like that. You got your second generation 
Yeah. Rockabilly so, Hall of Fame. I heard the Rockabilly Hall of Fame because I met a bunch of members. Older gentlemen, older women, Wanda mm. Jackson, people like that, Brenda Lee, Elvis, who's no longer, you know, Johnny Cash. Yeah, right. all those, all those uh, guys who played what is called rockabilly music. Right. You know, below the Mason-Dixon line in the South, rock and roll, as it's called, is called rockabilly a lot of times. They don't even call it rock and roll. But they're the same thing, mm -hmm. really. Up in New York, they don't call it. Rockabilly, right. <laughs> it's rock and roll or doo-wop up there, you know? Exactly. All blended in, one one doggone thing. But below the Mason-Dixon line, you you hear still a lot of people call it rockabilly. And that's uh, that's how I got involved. And I, I slipped in there because I met the curator of the Hall of Fame, Bob Timmers, and I had him as my first guest on my Rockabilly radio show. Nothing like plugging somebody. <laughs> <laughs> right. And Bob is a wonderful man, and he told me stories of Gene Vincent uh, that I really wanted to hear. I wanted to hear a lot of stories, because I'm, I'm really obsessed with uh, the uh, roots music, American roots music, and Rockabilly and rock and roll. I love that, that part of American history, I think. It's worth being a keeper of the flame for that. Because that Bob called me, a key. he says, you're a keeper of the flame. I said, yes, I am. I says, if you ever have a new uh, a new list of people you would want to induct in the Hall of Fame, you know, slide me in there, would you, pal? And I just said it sort of like that. Well, a few years later, 15 years later, I kept up the Rockabilly spirit in Nashville, and I played with my trio in Franklin, Tennessee a lot. Uh, we played uh, many places down there, and we're doing quite well. You played with, before we get into the band, I want to talk about the band. Tell me about your experience playing with and going playing many venues with Simon and Garfunkel. There's a whole left turn right there, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, a long time ago when Jeff and I uh, got our first record contract with Clive Davis, boy, here we come around a bend there. Had to bring it in, both in CBS. A couple of hot rods speeding there toward each other. Move over, hot rod, move me. Clive Davis signed us to CBS Records. We seek management. When we chopped our demos, we seek management in San Francisco and found it. Hodge and Hesinius, they were criminal lawyers representing Angela Davis and the Soledad brothers and people like that. But they branched off into... Entertainment? Entertainment, because there was money there and fun. <laughs> so a lot of people were doing that. Brian Rohan and people like that in San Francisco. Before there was a journey, before there was Huey Lewis and people like that, we found this management team. They had Kenny Loggins and a couple other people they were working with. And they have uh, um, they had this wonderful mansion on Page Street in San Francisco. And every Thursday they'd have a party there, a social, with coffee and donuts and a fireplace and a grand piano. And they'd invite the mayor of the city of San Francisco, Bill Graham and people like that. Party on Page. PBS did a, 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 a one-hour special on it, right. and they said, perfect time for you to get a record contract. We'll invite Clive Davis, we'll invite other dignitaries and whoever, you know, people from other labels, but we really were assuming for Clive and CBS. Sure enough, Clive shows up, saw the Staten Brothers playing. We were big hair in those days, and we were playing sort of what was called country rock. Um, and, and Clive said, are you boys signed to a label? And I said, uh, no. He says, you'll be signed to CBS in two weeks. I said, does it only take two weeks to get signed to Columbia? <laughs> then I shall accept your deal right now. Where's, where do I sign? Now, we, we, we negotiated a fine contract for young artists. Right. And um, 
Those Staten brothers got to make a wonderful record with John Simon, who did, uh, he was our producer, uh, from New York, who did uh, the band, mm-hmm. uh, Janis Joplin, Big Brother, Ping, Bob Dylan, a lot oh, of wow. other people. He recorded half the album with us in San Francisco. The other half I went to New York to stay with him out in Woodstock, New York, of all places. Um, and uh, we mixed it out there in, in New York. And the album didn't sell much, maybe 5,000 copies for a major label. <laughs> we did really well in the Bay Area, but not outside the Bay Area. And, and we were very disappointed. We said, man, you could sign with Clive Davis and have this kind of a live going and not sell records. Something's wrong. What are we, do- what are we doing wrong? We said, we got to move to Los Angeles. <laughs> now, that was a, a right or wrong to do, but we did. Tell me how you got these gentlemen in your band. Because um, you're going to be playing a song pretty soon. So tell me how you got these two exceptions. These two guys I really like. I, I'll be honest. They're my favorite guys I've ever played with as far as upright doghouse bass. Mr. Andy Bergman over here. And Gene, who I've known for a long time, too. Great. Gene and I went to the same high school there in Hayward. Uh, Tennyson High. Lord Alfred Tennyson High. Thank you very much. And, uh, and Gene is... Uh, I call him my priest because Gene uh, is a good man, and once in a while he wears the robe with the brown thing, and and he makes me pray and stuff. Um, <laughs> but he's a good man. I found these guys simply because I came back. I, I lived in Nashville for the last fifteen years, right. and more recent times. I raised some kids there. I got a son and a daughter that I raised them to teenage. They live in San Francisco now. And and, and I'm over here in the East Bay wondering what I'm going to do with the rest of my days. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, I just got to keep playing that Roots music like I did in Nashville. Um, I wonder how people are going to like it around here. And I ran into Gene just coincidentally at a mm-hmm. club. Um, and, and I said, Gene... I know you're a drummer, and, 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 and do you think you can play rockabilly music and that kind of stuff? He says, oh, sure. He says, I've been a fan of the Statens for uh, years. That's, you know, uh, and you're going to play again. You know, I wanted to thank Billy and the Lucky Dice for coming here tonight. And, you know, on i, I got to give a little promo. On April 26, 2014, uh, the legendary Pat Travers is coming to Pine Street. Uh, his supporting bill is Jungle Rooster and Blue Voodoo. So that's uh, April 26th in Livermore. Billy, we're gonna we're gonna have you close the show. We're gonna have mm. you uh, play a tune. It's wonderful. <laughs> I'd like to have you back because you have such a long story. Yeah, I do. And we only have. I realize that now as I'm talking to you, mm-hmm. the darn thing is. It's a long playing record, isn't it? And and I I find and myself wanting to talk in, in detail about things, and I just am smacking walls but, here. But but, but in but, all actuality, you know, we're going to have you back. And okay. not only we're going to have him back. Uh, what's really nice is they're going to do a uh, a closing number for the show. And before we say goodbye, this is what we normally do. If you guys could join me. We like to thank all our fans that have supported our show throughout the years. We're the most watched independent television show, and we like to give a kiss to all the young ladies and women are, that follow our show and send us such good emails. Here we go. Ready? We're going to kiss ladies now? All the ladies. Fellas? Here we you... go. <laughs> ladies, wherever you may be, happy Valentine's Day. Great Uncle Albert loved good food, and those piping hot muffins Aunt Sarah served really made the meal. And now, to make your meal extra special, here are my new quick and easy muffin mixes. Your choice of four different flavors, golden fluffy corn, delicious date, hearty raisin bran, tangy orange. 
all so quick and easy to make, so homey good. Try tempting hot raisin bran for breakfast, hot orange or date for lunch or tea, or steaming hot corn muffins for dinner. All piping hot, light, moist, tender muffins, the melt-in-your-mouth kind. Now, made in a twinkling with our Betty Crocker muffin mixes. Remember the four flavors, corn, date, orange, raisin, bran. Enjoy hot muffins at your house. Make them this modern way with new Betty Crocker muffin mixes. Oh, the big news, the big news this year's DeSoto, DeSoto with power flight ships. Just the turn of a key and you're ready to go. No clutch and no shifting automatic, you know. Automatic DeSoto has more, more power. And beauty that shines like a star. For the thrill of a ride that will fill you with pride, drive you so automatic. Yes, drive a new DeSoto automatic equipped with Power Flight, America's finest fully automatic transmission. You'll find driving is easier and far less tiring because DeSoto's fully automatic Power Flight transmission was designed to carry out your sudden orders quickly, smoothly, quietly. So, for a new driving thrill, drive a new DeSoto Automatic with Power Flight. And if it's power you're looking for, get behind the wheel of a DeSoto Fire Dome. The mighty Fire Dome 170 horsepower V8 engine gives you all the power you can possibly use at the touch of a toe, ready to perform the instant you call on it. Visit your DeSoto Plymouth dealer tomorrow and treat yourself to the beauty and luxury of a new DeSoto Automatic. Available in two great series, the mighty 170-horsepower Fire Dome 8 and the superb Power Master 6. Remember, DeSoto puts you ahead automatically. Man, you know I'm going to have Billy London and the Lucky Dice close our show with a song called Rip It Up. Mm -hmm. Well, it's Saturday night and I just got paid. Well, I'm going to know what I'm trying to say. Let's go have a time for Saturday night
somehow the will of the people. Our governance has been bought and sold. The people outspent and undermined. A system designed to represent the people has been reduced to a luxury that few can afford. Enough. A government of, by, and for the people is not some idealistic fantasy. It's non-negotiable. So we're building a movement against corruption. A movement that will force our government to make a few simple changes. No more rewriting laws for the lobbyists who funded your campaign. No more backroom deals for special interest cronies. No more pandering to your donors to stay in office. So if our leaders won't take a stand against corruption, we'll find new ones to represent us. We are a nation of fighters. We are Americans. And when we stand together as one nation, indivisible, nothing can hold us back. <laughs> 